Letters from a Glass House is a not-for-profit ministry of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Venice, Florida. Support us today at UUCOV.org. Years ago, the writer Stephen King realized that his drug use had gotten out of control, and he writes about this very publicly. His wife Tabitha staged an intervention, and he went to his doctor at one point, and then the doctor said to him, Steve, how much do you drink? And Stephen King says, I looked at him with total incredulity and said, well, all of it. <laughs> and I thought about that for years. You know, I have smoked since I was 12 years old. I was a pack-a-day smoker by the time I was 13. By the time I was 30, I was a three-pack-a-day smoker. And then I got sick. And my brain swelled. And at some point in that process, I woke up one morning and I didn't want to smoke. I just stopped. I couldn't imagine lighting a cigarette. I had Hashimoto's encephalopathy and a swollen brain. They medicated, they did all kinds of stuff, and I had no interest in smoking. About five years went by, didn't smoke. And then they fixed my brain and the swelling all went down. And I couldn't imagine life without a cigarette again. And two days later, I was a pack-a-day smoker again because it turned back on. We don't know where addiction sits exactly in the brain but we know it's there. We don't know how much of it is a disease, how much of it is a part of the brain that responds differently to stimulation, how much is habit. But addictions hurt. They hurt the addict, they hurt the community, they hurt the families. We can't even define addiction really well. It's considered a chronic disease. We know that motivation and memory and the circuitry that goes with those things are deeply involved. We know that it has something to do with pathologically pursuing reward. And that phrase says it all to me, pathologically pursuing reward reward. And let's face it, half the time those rewards don't even reward you much anymore with most addictions. There's a great cartoon out there that shows a little bird walking along and he sees a lovely yellow pill and he scoops it up and he can fly high and he flies and he gradually comes down and he sees another pill he goes up again, but not quite as far, and he comes down a little faster. 
By the 20th or 30th pill, he's dragging along the ground, and each time he eats another one, he can kind of perk up a little. But he's not flying anymore. That's what addiction looks like. Addiction means we can't stay away from something, but it doesn't give us any idea of how to decide when the pursuit of something is pathological and when it's only a strong interest. Just because you like a glass or two of wine a day doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. You can be a severe foodie without being food addicted. And you can play video games every day without being a game addict. But when you cannot quit consuming your substance of choice, drugs, alcohol, food, pornography, when you can't quit playing the game, gambling, sex, sports, When you can't quit, then we're probably talking about addiction. One in 10 Americans has a drug or alcohol problem, and by problem, I mean it impacts their ability to do the other things they want to do. 15.4 million alcoholics. 13.5% of Americans 12 and over used drugs in the last month. Fifty-nine 21.4% of people 12 and over have used illegal drugs or misused prescription drugs in the last year. That's almost a quarter of us, folks. 50% of people age 12 and over have illicitly used drugs in their lifetime. Twenty point four percent have used alcohol in a way that indicates disorder. Fifty seven point something million people use tobacco. A quarter of illegal drug users have a drug disorder. A quarter of those with drug disorders have an opioid disorder. Addiction doesn't care what race you are. It doesn't care what religion you are. doesn't care if you're rich or poor or what your gender is. We all have at least some addiction issues. But Americans seem to have the disease the worst. And the pandemic made it even worse. Bruce Alexander wrote an amazing treatise on addiction and American alienation. He wrote, global society is drowning in addiction, drug use, a thousand other habits. It's because people around the world, rich and poor alike, are being torn from ties to family and culture, traditional spirituality that constituted the normal fabric of life in pre-modern times. This kind of global society subjects people to unrelenting pressure toward individualism and competition, dislocating them from social life. 
and people adapt to the dislocation by concocting the best substitutes they can for a sustaining social and cultural and spiritual wholeness. Addictions provide this substitute. History tells us that addiction can be rare in a society for centuries, but become nearly universal when circumstances change. When a tribal culture is crushed or an advanced civilization collapses, History doesn't deny that there are differences in vulnerability built into genes and individual experience and personal character, but it removes individual differences from the foreground because social determinants are so much more powerful. Medically and psychologically, addiction is a disease. Sociologically, it's about alienation. So where does religion come in? Religion can be a part of how you survive the disease of addiction. It removes the alienation, the isolation that keeps you vulnerable. And 12-step spirituality is something to look at closely, whether or not you have addictions. I want to look at that first reading because it calls us to transformation. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, you can drop the word alcohol and put in anything you like. I don't care if you're powerless over cupcakes, porn, gambling. The first step is seeing that there is a problem and reclaiming some honesty there. No, you can't stop. How many times have you told somebody, well, I, of course I'm not addicted. I can stop any time. No, you can't. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> it's about realizing that while you may be dangling over your own personal hell, that there is a break you can grab before you go any further. If nothing else, if nothing else, You have complete and utter control over saying, no, I don't got this. No, I am in trouble with this, and I need help. You have total control over that. That first step says, I recognize I'm part of a web of people and things And that some part of the web, the alcohol or the drug or the gambling part, mattered too much to me. And so that my place in the web has become twisted and unstable. The web might be currently wrapped around your neck, but you are still connected and you can be untwisted. Number two, came to believe and accept that we needed strength beyond our awareness and resources to restore us to sanity. We came to understand we need a community, something bigger and stronger and collectively wiser to hold us when it's too much. Doesn't matter if there's a god or goddess or divine being as part of that community. We need to be held and seen by something larger. Three, made a decision to entrust our will and lives to the care of collective wisdom and resources of those who have searched before us. 
That means stop reinventing the wheel. You're not alone. It's easy to feel that you are the worst sinner that has ever been and that you are alone in how much you have screwed this up and you can't tell anybody and that's a lie. You are not alone. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. When you use the theology and you decide where you have fallen short of what the right things are, you also come to understand that you alone get to decide what is ethically right, and only you get to decide how short you have fallen. Addiction takes away control, but as you decide what right is, you take control of deciding how far from right you are. It hurts, but it hurts good. You've finally seen the actual damage. You've made assessment of the mess. There is no more other shoe. Number five, admitted to ourselves without reservation and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. This is nothing less than utter honesty. Being yourself, being fully present, in covenant with another human being. When you can't do anything else because you've screwed it all up, you can do this and get it right, and it's the first thing. You can show up in all your brokenness, and you can dare to trust at least one person to be with you in that brokenness. And for some of us, that is an utter revelation that you can say to somebody, I can't stop this thing, and I can't control this thing, and I need help, and have them say to you, and I love you, and I'm right here, and I'm not leaving. I see you just the way you are. Number six, we're ready to accept help in letting go of our defects of character. You are ready to return to community, to be a part of something, to let go of alienation, to give and take in relationship. And maybe it's about letting go of some parts of who you thought you were. I'm a drunk. I'm a drug addict. Maybe it's time to let go. Seven, sought to eliminate our shortcomings with humility and openness. It's the action piece. One should let go of the identity. It's time to eliminate the traits. Time to be born again as the person you want to be. Eight, made a list of everybody you hurt. Be willing to make amends. You're not doing anything yet. But you look, you tell the truth to yourself. No, they didn't think you were funny. Yes, your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife got hurt. And yes, you're really sorry. Nine made a direct amends whenever possible, except when to do so would hurt somebody. 
Seems self-explanatory. You go make it better if you can. That's your job. You did it. You can fix it. Unless it'll hurt them worse. You don't get to go try to fix something if they don't want anything to do with you. Or if they've already done that work and it just didn't involve you. Sometimes things just get to stay broken. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, admitted it. This is about learning a new way. Eleven, improved our spiritual awareness and our understanding. Tried to discover the power to carry out that way of life. You want this to become a habit. Admit when you're powerless. Look for help. Tell the truth. Accept yourself. Reach out. And then having had a spiritual awakening, we try to carry the message and to practice these principles. You can apply this to anything. It's a call to covenant and community and to teach and to support others. It says that once you are no longer drowning, it's your duty to put on a life jacket and help somebody else because now you're part of the web that is untwisted. And you're looking for the next person who has the web wrapped around their neck and is standing there saying, I need some help, please. If addiction of any kind is part of your life, the church can help. Your community can help you find comfort and strength. Your 12-step program works seamlessly with our UU values and principles. If addiction is not part of your life, the 12-step spirituality can be used to approach other problems. It's a way of living akin to Buddhism in that it's a set of approaches which can be used with multiple spiritual beliefs. Whatever is holding you in prison, whatever is holding you back, you can fight it with 12 little steps, 12 giant steps. The distance across a kitchen, the distance between hell and hope, 12 steps. It works if you let it one day at a time, one day, just today. One step at a time. Amen.